as I mentioned before, it is good to be back with you after a couple of weeks off. And I, I thank Nathan and Chad for faithfully finishing out 1 Thessalonians. And uh, I trust that you were blessed by their preaching of God's word as we always are. And um, so Nathan finished up 1 Thessalonians, I trust, last week. And the good news is that we're going to stick with the Thessalonians for one more book. And so I want to encourage you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. You'll find it on page 1259 in the Blue uh, Pew Bible if you don't have a Bible with you. But I would encourage you, uh, whether it's your own Bible or one we provide you, go ahead and turn there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be spending the next two months together in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Uh, and I don't know whether you realized it this summer as we were reading through 1 Thessalonians or not. But what we were hearing as week after week we were expounding this letter are the very first Christian scriptures to be put on paper. 1 and 2 Thessalonians were the very first Christian scriptures to be written in the New Testament. Did you know that? Um, written before any of the Gospels, written before any of Paul's famous letters, written before Acts. In fact, because of the people that Paul mentions are his co-laborers at the beginning of the letter and the, the events that he mentions in these two letters, we can actually pinpoint when in Paul's missionary journeys and where, from where, he wrote these letters. He mentions at the beginning of the letter both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. Luke tells us that Paul's ministry with Silas and Timothy was his second missionary journey. And uh, the book of Acts tells us that shortly after Paul and Timothy planted the church at Thessalonica, the gospel sprouts up and all these believers come to Christ, and they gather them into a church. Paul and Timothy and Silas are run out of town very quickly. Um, they're beaten. They're chased out of town. And at, at that point, actually, Paul and Silas and Timothy are, the gang is split up, and they finally meet back up at a place called Corinth. Is that ringing any bells? Hopefully it does. So they, their paths separate, they find each other back in the region of Macedonia, Acts 18 tells us. And believe it or not, surprise, surprise, when Silas and Timothy arrive and find Paul in Corinth, Paul is occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. They find Paul doing the very thing that he was doing when their paths were separated. Here he is in another town, but doing the exact same activity, preaching the word, seeking to persuade Jews and Gentiles that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So here they are, their paths come back together in Corinth, and Acts 18.11 tells us, Paul and Silas and Timothy stayed a year and six months in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. So it's during this year and a half stay in Corinth, which is, uh, we can actually pinpoint was somewhere between A.D. 49 and 51, 
That's when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, sent it with Timothy, received Timothy back, and then wrote 2 Thessalonians and sent it to the Thessalonians again. What's amazing about 1 and 2 Thessalonians is how similar these first two letters of Paul, the very first two Christian writings that we have in our New Testament, how similar they sound to all the rest of Paul's letters. In fact, how similar the teaching of Paul in these early letters is to the whole rest of the New Testament. Think about it. A.D. 49, this is only 15 or 20 years after Jesus walked the earth. And Paul demonstrates in these letters a clear understanding of things like the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. We see a fully developed understanding of Jesus' return and of the resurrection of the saints. First and second Thessalonians contain the basic concepts of election, repentance, sanctification, justification, discipleship, the kingdom of God, the gospel, substitutionary atonement, Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, life in the body of Christ, the mortification of sin, and living in holiness. All of these things in these two short letters. The very first Christian writings that we have. The reason why I make a big deal out of this is that there are some people out there who seek to discredit the foundations of Christianity like, well, you know, in the early centuries it was the Wild West and there were a lot of different things people were teaching about Jesus and it wasn't until 200, 300 years after Jesus lived that they sort of, some bigwigs came in and enforced orthodoxy on the rest and sort of quelled all of these other beliefs about Jesus. First and second Thessalonians show us that just is not the case. Here we have Paul, who's going around planting churches, and it's very clear. He knows exactly what faith it is that he is passing on to all of these little fledgling churches. We find in 2 Thessalonians, Paul not altering, not evolving, not changing the gospel, but as Jude commands, contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Paul isn't writing to the Thessalonians and saying, some things in my theology have evolved, have changed, and I need to correct some things that I taught you when I was there. No, what we find Paul doing in these letters is seeking to encourage the Thessalonians, don't you dare let anyone convince you of any other truth than the one that I gave you on the first day that I began to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. In fact, we have him invoking a curse on anyone who would send a letter or who would come to town preaching anything, even an angel coming, trying to persuade them of any other faith or gospel than the one Paul first gave to them. And you know, we don't often get to do this because of the length of the books that we often preach through here, um, but I'd love for us to sit and just listen. It's going to take three or four minutes for us to read through the whole letter to the Thessalonians and then we'll spend a few minutes expounding the introduction. So if you haven't found 2 Thessalonians yet, go ahead and turn there. I'll allow you to remain seated. And we're going to give our ears to listen and our hearts to believe these words as Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, 
and Sylvanus and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because our faith is because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which all you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word, work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, 
He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourself know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not be grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we enter into this letter from our brother Paul, we pray that you would encourage our faith, that we would be steadfast under any trial or affliction, that we would abound in thanksgiving and love and in faith. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning, we are only going to look at the first four verses of this letter. It's a sort of opening greeting uh, where we have the from and the to and Paul sort of gets things rolling. And as I began to study this letter in earnest this past week, I was struck really by the second word of this letter. And it really is a shame because in our English, if you're reading an English Standard Version with me and, and probably most translations, the second word of this letter isn't included because it's not proper English to put the word and between every uh, between items in a series. We usually substitute a punctuation mark, a comma, right? So in our Bibles it reads Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. But as I was reading it this week, I was struck by the word that falls right after the first word, Paul, and it's this word. And, Paul, and. As we dive into this letter together, I want us to ponder, firstly, the blessing of and. The blessing of and. Paul and Silas and Timothy. I don't know whether you've noticed it or not, but of the ten letters that Paul wrote to the churches, seven of them begin with this exact same word, Paul and. They aren't merely addressed from Paul alone, but Paul 
and Paul and some other co-laborer. Paul and another partner in the gospel. Paul and his fellow ministers. And this is not by accident. In his earliest letters to the churches, Paul is seeking to emphasize to his listeners, to his hearers, the blessing of and. Paul is seeking to show every fledgling church and every church that would come after that he is not building some kind of personality cult. Paul and indicates to the Thessalonians that Paul is merely one of many ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of many co-laborers in the proclamation of the good news about Jesus. And this is a blessing that Paul knew firsthand, the blessing of and. Maybe you know the story of what happened to Paul just before he arrived in the city of Thessalonica. He and Silas and Timothy had been just up the valley in a city called Philippi. And when they came into town and began to preach the gospel, the people there were not happy with what they heard. And they started a riot. And they started to beat them with nightsticks, and then they threw them in jail. Now, battered and black-eyed and bruised, the story finds Paul seated, sitting there chained to the wall in a Philippian jail. And it's midnight. And what do we find Paul doing there? He's singing. At midnight, Paul is singing. He and Silas are singing hymns together. And it's in that Philippian jail, as, as hymns are floating forth from that jail cell where Paul is singing the praises of God, and all the inmates there are listening to the joy in his voice, Paul is celebrating the blessing of and. Paul is not in that prison cell by himself. Paul is there and Silas. As we read the opening words of this letter, Paul and Silas, we are reminded of the blessing of and. That night in jail is a beautiful illustration of this blessing. Because one man can sing just fine all by himself. But it takes at least two men to harmonize. This is the blessing of Anne in the gospel ministry. It's the beauty of men working together to minister the word to the people of God. The harmony, the sharing of authority, the mutual recognition, the protection, the shepherding, the camaraderie, the friendship of men who are working together to shepherd and lead and feed the flock of God. Paul and Silas singing together in a Philippian prison is a beautiful illustration of what every local church ought to be pleading with the Lord for. God, give us the blessing of hand. One man preaching the gospel alone is good, but we want Paul and Silas and Timothy. 
in the church. We want the most full-orbed, well-rounded, beautiful gospel proclamation possible, resounding in every prison cell of this town, finding its way into the dorm rooms and the nursing homes and the houses echoing off the walls and classrooms and in the streets, the beautiful harmonic gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed not just from one man, but from many. Many men preaching the gospel together, each with his own voice, each singing the praises together of the one Lord and Savior. You see, we're all shaped by different passions and experiences and opportunities, and the Spirit has bestowed different gifts. And the most beautiful gospel is going to be one sung from one pulpit by different voices on different weeks. Different voices demonstrating how the gospel has a beautiful plurality to it that men from different ages and backgrounds and colors and classes are all saved by the same Savior and brought into the same people and gathered around the same throne to sing praises to the Lord together. Old men like Paul and Cyrus. Young men like Timothy. Brothers and sisters, let us pray and plead and endeavor to experience in this church the blessing of and, where it's no longer Chad who preaches the gospel, but Chad and. We read in Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, how dejected he is to be left alone and abandoned in his ministry. Brothers and sisters, if the Apostle Paul felt his desperate need for co-laborers, for fellow ministers in doing the gospel ministry, if Paul needed friends in the gospel, certainly Chad does. Certainly any other minister of the gospel does as well. Who will God add to the number of pastors in our church? May God give College Street Baptist Church not just one pastor, but two and three and more. Will we pray together for the blessing of and? Well, we could spend the whole rest of the sermon on this word. I'm going to limit myself, though. We need to make some progress, otherwise it will take five years for us to make it through this letter. Secondly, I want us to look this morning at the ought of thanksgiving. Look at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This is the way that Paul actually begins almost every single one of his letters is with, secondly, the ought of thanksgiving. Paul says thanksgiving is something we ought always to do. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Ministers of the gospel can grow discouraged on the one hand or conceited on the other if they forget the ought of thanksgiving. Because they begin to think that whatever they're seeing in their ministry is a result of their own work. 
And so if things are going well, and the church is growing, and people are joining the church, they begin to grow puffed up and conceited because they start to think, huh, I'm doing something here. Look at, look at all of my good works. Or if things aren't going well, and the church isn't growing, and people aren't coming to Christ, they begin to come, become discouraged because they think, huh, I'm a failure because my work is not doing anything here. The same danger lurks for any church. Churches can grow conceited if they forget the ought of thanksgiving. They begin to think, it's our great programs. It's our attractive ministries. It's our size that makes us succeed. Look at us. We are something. Or on the flip side, we don't have great big programs. We don't have attractive ministries. We're small. That's what's making us fail. The art of thanksgiving is the recognition of who it is that deserves all of the credit for what's going on in my life and in my church. When the church grows, who is the one who gets celebrated? Who is thanked? Churches that know that any growth in faith or love among their congregation is a work of God and God alone, they give thanks where thanks is due. We ought always to give thanks to whom? To God for you. What is happening among you, O Thessalonians? Paul says, whatever is happening among you, O College Street, Paul says, whatever it is, the person who deserves the credit, the thanksgiving ought to be given to God and him alone. Ought implies duty. Ought means it's our job. This is the part that we play in the plan of salvation. The Father sends His Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son comes and lays down His life in our place, bleeding, suffering, dying, and being raised for the forgiveness of our sins. The Holy Spirit comes and gives new life and gives us ears to hear, hearts that are able to receive the love of God. And we are now able to walk in newness of life, in holiness and righteousness. And what is our part? Our only duty is thanksgiving. Our job in this whole plan of salvation is just to watch God work and give Him thanks. That's the art of thanksgiving. In response to all that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have done. In response to all the grace and peace that the Holy Spirit is sprinkling and showering upon us day after day. It is our job to fill our minds, our hearts, our lives, our homes, our churches, our workplaces, our classrooms, wherever we may be found. We ought to fill it with thanksgiving. What are we to be thankful for? Are there particular things that we ought to give thanks for? Well, look again at verse 3. Paul gives us two things that we can certainly be thankful for. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So Paul says the thing that I am constantly, I can never get over, 
This work of God that I am seeing on display among you that I'm always giving thanks for is twofold, that your faith is growing and your love is increasing. Your faith is growing and your love is increasing. Caroline, can you go sit down? What this means is that we recognize that any growth in my faith, in your faith, in our faith, is a work of who? Who gets the thanks? God. He is the source. The Father is the origin. By His grace, He grants us faith as a gift. Faith to believe and to trust His promises. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting that God will do what he has promised to do in and through Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. Growing in faith doesn't mean my estimation of me and my ability and my strength is growing. Growing in faith means my estimation of myself actually continues to shrink day after day. But my estimation of God and his faithfulness my estimation of God and His power, my estimation of God and His trustworthiness, my estimation of God and His love for me, my estimation of God and His glory is growing every day. And it only makes me trust Him even more. Now, does this mean we can do nothing to grow our faith? I think there is one thing that we can do. Apostle Paul in his letter to Romans says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, God, I want more faith. Well, the Bible tells us all faith enters us through one organ, and that's the ear. So if we want to grow in faith, we better put ourselves where we are going to be hearing the word of Christ. Week in, week out. So it stands to reason that the more a believer hears the word of Christ, the more her faith, the more his faith, the more our faith is going to grow. Now that's a work of God, but certainly we should put ourselves within earshot of the word of God as much as we can. Because that's how faith is going to come to us. Faith grows as we hear the promises of God and we trust them. Faith grows as we hear the gospel and we choose to believe it is true. Faith grows as we hear the word of God and we say, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I am going to endeavor and trust God is going to help me to obey what he calls me to do. And as this supernatural reality takes hold in the body of Christ and we see our faith grow, as amazing as it is, Paul says we need to give thanks to God for that as we see it happen. But we ought also to give thanks for increasing love. So as Paul is dancing and celebrating before the throne of God, the thing that he is celebrating is a church whose members are growing in love for one another, each and every one of them. The united effort, the united Love of a membership is something to celebrate and cherish and to thank God for. This past week I was sitting with Nathan and I could hear in his voice as he was sharing with me how jealous he is for more time with his brothers and sisters at College Street Baptist Church. 
That is a sign of a church that is increasing in its love for one another. When was the last time that you made an effort to cultivate what Paul says is this priceless thing that when we find it, we ought to celebrate and give thanks for? In what ways are you seeking to cultivate this united love? When was the last time you had a member of this church over just to share a meal at your house? When was the last time you offered to help a member in need? We can become so wrapped up in our own individual schedules and jobs and careers and school and families that the gospel takes the blinders off and says, listen, self-sufficiency is not the goal here. Self-sacrifice is. Open your heart and your life to the people in this body and let them in. Open your schedule up and let them in. Open your prayers up and let them in. Open your table and let them in. Jesus loves these people. And if Jesus Christ is dwelling in your heart, then a love for these people ought to be there as well. And that's why Paul gives thanks. Our churches love and care for one another. Because you know what? When a church is tangibly, not just shaking hands and patting each other on the back and saying love you on Sunday morning, but a church that is tangibly living in love for one another is a visible demonstration to the world that a loving God is out there. And that a loving Savior has died. And that his kingdom is expanding. <coughs> the ought of thanksgiving. Well, in just a few short verses, we've already been encouraged by the blessing of and and the ought of thanksgiving. And we're going to land this morning, thirdly, with the steadfastness of faith. Look with me at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So what is a faith that is worth bragging about? What kind of faith is worth boasting about that you would go from town to town and tell people about? Faith when times are good, faith when the job's good, family's good, when the politicians in power agree with you, church is good, life's good. Is that the kind of faith that you would go around bragging about? I've got faith, my life is good, everything's going well, and I'm still trusting God, man. Anyone can trust God when things are good, no. When things aren't good, that's the kind of faith that is amazing. When people have experienced significant loss and still cling to Jesus, that is what is an astounding testimony to the world when things aren't good. Paul's bragging about the faith in Thessalonica because they remain faithful and steadfast through tribulation and persecution and affliction. They're sticking with Jesus when things aren't good, when their brothers and sisters are being dragged off and put in prison by the government. 
when there's danger of them being beaten by wads in the marketplace, when they lose their jobs, when their families are disowning them, when family and friends are dying. Faith worth bragging about is faith that is steadfast, faith that stands the test. Like Abraham, may it be said of us, no unbelief made them waver concerning the promise of God, but they grew strong in their faith as they gave glory to God, fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised no matter what the circumstances may be screaming to us. And hopefully you realize this kind of steadfast faith is not something that you or I can engender in ourselves or just seem to muster up by lifting ourselves up by the bootstraps. Steadfast faith does not say, I will hold him fast. We've sung it this morning. Steadfastness of faith says, when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When Paul says he's bragging about the church at Thessalonica, don't get confused and think that Paul is telling all these churches, man, there's some super Christians in Thessalonica. No, he's saying, look at what these Christians are enduring and God is holding on to them and sustaining their faith. What a mighty God we serve. Look at how strong God is that he can sustain his people through any trial, through any test, affliction, or oppression. Recently, we've seen a wave of former evangelicals abandoning the faith. I don't know whether that's something that's been on your radar, but it's been heavy on my heart. Um, people who've been even influential on my own life. A couple of years ago, a Christian singer named Derek Webb abandoned the faith, a man whose music had deeply affected my faith in high school and college, doesn't believe in God anymore. Recently, Joshua Harris, who is a best-selling Christian author and a pastor of a large church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, has uh, announced that he's walking away from the faith, that he doesn't consider himself a Christian anymore. And my wife said on his Instagram account recently, he posted a photo of himself waving a, a a pride flag and eating rainbow cupcakes. Brothers and sisters, faith that fails the test proves not to be faith. When trial comes, when difficulty arises, when the culture swings away from Christianity as a popular way of living life, that is when our faith will either stand or fall. Jesus himself, in telling the parable of the four soils, two of the four are soils that look like faith at first, but then the word ends up dying. What about me? Will I have steadfastness of faith? Praise the Lord that it doesn't depend on me for the answer to that question. That is God's job. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are working in perfect concert to sustain the faith of every child of God.
through every affliction and trial. No one, no thing, no event can snatch you out of his hand. Rest easy in that. Believe that to be true. I can tell you one thing God will use if you will make it firm to the end. If your faith is going to be steadfast, he's going to sustain you by the power of his word. That's why Paul has written this letter. Not to correct errors that he made when he was teaching in Thessalonica, or to tell the church about how his beliefs have evolved, or how he's uh, come to believe things that are more in line with the rest of the culture. He's heard news back from Thessalonica after his first letter, some good and some bad. And what does he do in order to help bolster their faith and make sure they make it to the finish line? He sends them the word of God to keep them steadfast in the faith. So if you are wavering in your faith, you're experiencing doubts about whether Christianity is true or not. Maybe you've believed in the past, but you're not so sure. Or if you're considering the faith, whether you want to be baptized and become a follower of Jesus. If you are a human being alive and breathing this morning, the thing, the last thing you should ever do is cut yourself off from the hearing of the preaching of God's word. Because it is the word of God that is going to sustain that faith, however strong or weak it may be today. Keep gathering with the people of God. This is where the Holy Spirit cultivates that steadfastness of faith in the face of whatever persecution or affliction or oppression or difficulty may be lying just a few days from now down your journey and your life with God. Here, as we are celebrating the blessing of and that I am not alone in the faith, exercising the art of thanksgiving, seeking to fill our mouths and reminding each other of how God has kept his promises in the past and we trust and believe he will tomorrow and in the future. This is where we experience the steadfastness of faith. So friend, whether you consider yourself to be a non-Christian or a baptized believer this morning, will you not in response to what Paul has shared with us already, believe and trust and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Will we all trust in the God who has accomplished the work of salvation from Alpha to Omega in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that the only thing left for us to do is to believe and to thank him for what he's doing and what he's continuing to do. Trusting that his promises are what are going to carry us to the finish through every trial, tribulation, and test. Will you and I not put our faith in him today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when we say he will hold me fast, we are not espousing something we hope to be true, we think might be true, we wish would be true, but a promise that we know we can trust. 
Lord Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here whose faith is failing today, I pray that you would not let go of them. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grab hold of new hearts this afternoon as they ponder your word, as it takes root in good soil. Lord, we pray that we would be able to celebrate and give thanks for the fruitfulness of the faith and love that we see, which we know only you can accomplish in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we trust and pray. Amen.